I don't know if all of you, probably not a lot of you are aware of this, but uh, Chris and Sarah Sardina have just adopted a, a special needs child uh, after having him in foster care. And it's a, it's a very fascinating story, and it's somehow caught the attention of the Buffalo News. And so they have been working on a story about them. And a part of that is they recognize how significant uh, their faith is to them as a family. And so uh, part of them recognizing that is that they had a photographer who came today and they attended the 940 service. And so all throughout the 940 service, the photographer was taking pictures of, of them and the worship and things. So you might want to, I don't know exactly when it's going to come out. It's going to come out in a Sunday edition of Buffalo News. So you might just want to go buy Buffalo News for the next few months. And, uh, and I get a commission off of that, by the way, just by mentioning that. But it struck me as he was, as he was taking pictures, it struck me that, you know, it would have been nice to have a photographer and some of the biblical stories as they unfolded. You ever think about that? I find it hard sometimes to picture how these things took place. Uh, I'd like to see them. I'm a visual person. I like to see things. Uh, the Red Sea. I'd like to see how that happened and to see the walls of water, however it was, come to the side and the people walking through. And I suspect that the whole time they're doing this, you know, was that coming back or not? And just to watch that. I think about the walls of Jericho as they march around and all they do is blow trumpets and the walls come tumbling down. And, and just to be able to visualize, picture that scene. We talked about Jesus withering the fig tree last week. And I, I have that in my mind as well. He speaks to the fig tree and the thing just goes, hmm, nothing. I don't know what that looks like, but I would love to see it. I've always been intrigued about the feeding of the 5,000. How does Jesus do that? How does he take a few pieces of bread, a few fish, and, and multiply them? And I've always wondered, does he put his hands behind his back and, and break them like that? They just keep breaking or is in a bag or something? What does that look like? I want to be able to visualize what that looked like when that was happening because it's just, it's beyond my mind to comprehend. I need to see it. And, and actually, the story we read today is another one of those things that I would love to see that event in pictures. Here is Jesus reclining at the table, eating a meal, which is, you know, the tables were low and people would sit on cushions and they would kind of lean usually with an elbow on the table and they would eat that way. And, and here comes this woman. I hope Jesus saw her coming because if he didn't, that would have been quite a shock to, to just all of a sudden, what is that? This stuff poured on his head. It kind of reminded me of the Gatorade baths, you know, that they give coaches at the end of football games or something. It would have startled him. And, and, and here's this stuff pouring down him. And, and I thought about that. And I thought, you know, I think I might have been irritated by that. I'm trying to eat here. We're trying to have a conversation here. I just washed my hair this morning. Now, you know how expensive cleaners are to take care of these robes? I don't know what I'm going to do with this. And the disciples are upset. Matthew says they were indignant. That word's not used very often. In the New Testament. The disciples are indignant. When James and John's mother comes to Jesus and says. Hey Jesus when you usher in your kingdom. Can my boys be the top vice presidents? They're irritated about that. They're angry about it. Probably because they didn't think of it first. But you know they, they're upset. They're angry. 
The, the Pharisees are indignant at Jesus because he heals on the Sabbath. Jesus is indignant with the disciples because they refuse to let the little children come to him. This is a strong, powerful word of anger. And they are upset. There's a little bit of pride in it as well. But Jesus is pleased. Jesus says what she has done is anointed him. Anointing has a long history with God's people. Priests are anointed, Aaron and his sons, as the worship, the whole system of worship begins. The tool, the utensils and things in the tabernacle and the temple are anointed because they are set apart as something holy. And once they've been anointed and set apart, they can never be used for any other common purpose again. Kings are anointed. We just read this morning about David being anointed to be king. And what's interesting in all of those circumstances, the priests, the utensils, the king, all of those anointings are about the people and things being set apart to do something great for God. They're set apart to fulfill these great purposes for God. The priests have this privilege. They're set apart for privilege to be the ones who intercede between God and the people. And the utensils have a privilege. They are used in the temple for the holy things of God. And the king is set apart to be the ruler and to reign. And you saw in the story that what's it mean for David to be anointed? It means that he defeats his, the enemies of Israel. But Jesus says this is not an anointing for privilege. This is an anointing for burial, for death. I think what what we find in this story, what Jesus is saying, how he's interpreting what the woman does, I don't think she understands it quite that way, but I think Jesus interprets what she does as a word from the Father. Because the anointing is always, among all the different ways anointing is used, it is always representative of the Holy Spirit's presence. That's why when we pray for people sometimes and we anoint them with oil, it is a symbol of the presence and the reality of the Holy Spirit. And this anointing, it's as if Jesus is saying, thank you, Father, because as I'm heading into this week, this is Tuesday of Holy Week that this takes place, and I'm heading into the the events that are arising, and already at the beginning of the chapter, the, the wheels are in motion, and by the time you get to the end of this section, they are even more in motion as Judas goes to them. And Jesus is going to face some horrific, difficult things, ultimately leaving, heading to the cross. And in this moment, the Father sends him a message, an anointing, and says to him, You know you're doing what we planned, you and I together, from the very beginning. You're doing the right thing. And throughout all of this, the evil one is going to try and tempt you away from it. The evil one is going to try to keep you from accomplishing the purposes of why you have come. And I want to remind you, we are walking through this journey together. And there is something necessary about that kind of anointing of the Spirit on all of us. As we journey with Jesus. It's anointing, preparing him for where he's going to end up ultimately in a grave.
And Jesus says this anointing that is going to lead to an ugly cross is a good thing. The word he uses here is the same word that's used in the Septuagint in the, in the Greek Old Testament to describe God's, God's perspective of, of his creation. So he creates, at the end of his, of his creating, he says, looks at it and says, this is good. This is good. This is good. This is good. I like the way the NIV translates this phrase, this word. It's, it uses the word beautiful. And there is a difference between good and beautiful. The word good has a connotation of something measurable. We tend to think good as opposed to bad. But, but beautiful is more about its essence. I think that would be an appropriate word to use when we, in Genesis. When God looks at what he has made and he says, it's beautiful. There is an essence, there is an aesthetic value and the nature of what God creates that is beautiful. You know, they're, they're, when we talk about things being beautiful, we're talking about their essence. And often it has nothing to do with their functionality. We look at a sunrise in the morning. We're not thinking, boy, I'm so glad that sunrise came up or we'd all be in trouble. We're thinking, what a beautiful thing. And the same way about a sunset. Or the same way about a rose in bloom or a baby. All of these things, in many ways, have no, have no measurable value. They are just beautiful because they are. And I think Jesus is saying about what this woman does, this is beautiful in itself, in the essence of what she has done. And why is that? It's because she has acted out of love. And acting out of love always leads to beautiful things. There is an essence of beauty in love. I don't, we don't know exactly who this woman is. Some of the gospel writers uh, call her Mary. We don't know exactly which Mary. But I'm, I am certain that this woman does this because she has had a previous encounter with Jesus and her life has been transformed. She's a different person. And she is so full of gratitude. She is so full of love for Jesus that the, the, the best thing she can do, the best way she can express that is to take the most expensive thing she possesses and give it to him. And Jesus says, this is beautiful because it is pure an act of love. There's no agenda here. There's nothing else hidden here. It's just a woman whose heart is full of love and gratitude, expressing herself in the best way she knows how. And I think that's what God is calling us to. To live our lives in front of him and with him and for him with, this, with these expressions of gratitude and thanksgiving and love. They come out in a variety of ways. But when we, when we respond to Jesus and we, we interact with Jesus in those kinds of ways, they always look beautiful. But the disciples don't see it. 
Now, their comment is, what a waste. Now, I've got to be honest with you. Whenever I read this story, I kind of resonate with the disciples. I don't know how you feel, but I'm looking at this story and I'm thinking, I, I kind of get it. I mean, couldn't, they, couldn't this woman have, you know, bought an off-brand jar of perfume off the shelf, you know, nothing near as expensive? You know, do that and, and, and do something less valuable because it feels like, it does feel like a waste. I, I mean, the, I understand the disciples to say, look, this was valuable. Most people estimate a year's wages. And it doesn't matter what your wages are. If you give away a year's of your, year of your wages, it's a significant gift that you give. It's big. And the disciples say, look, we could sell that. We could give it to the poor. And Jesus says, you don't understand. Now, sometimes people will interpret Jesus' words. You always have the poor. You always have with you. You don't always have me. Sometimes people will say, well, that means Jesus isn't all that interested in the poor. Not at all. All you have to do is read the Gospels. And you find how much Jesus cares about the poor. I mean, his message over and over and over and over again is about helping the poor. And actually, Jesus didn't start that. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. The prophets are full of admonitions about how we treat the poor. That's not Jesus' point. His point is, do we, do we respond to Jesus with love or pragmatically? Do we respond to Jesus in gratitude or always with a certain level of calculation? Do we think, I can give God some, but I don't have to give him everything. I think sometimes we view what we do with our time and talent and treasures, we we view them like that. We say, okay, how much can I give of my time and my talent and my treasures? How much can I give and, and still be okay with God versus how much can I give as an expression of my love to God? How much can I give away and still survive and to trust God to meet my needs, whatever that may be? Because I'm convinced that there's a way in which you can be generous without really being generous. Because true generosity is a heart thing more than is anything else. I don't know if you've had the privilege of doing your taxes yet. Uh, you know, we all look forward to that, don't we? But I, I noticed as I was working on mine, and I was reading about this as well, that this year the standard deduction has gone way up. It's a huge increase in the standard deduction. And what that means is that for most people, probably most of us, to itemize our deductions is probably not going to be a worthwhile thing to do. Because most of us are probably not going to accumulate enough deductions that it reaches the standard deduction. And that means that the standard deduction is so high that it doesn't matter if you give thousands or nothing to any, have any kind of deductions, you still get the same tax break. 
And as I've been reading things, a lot of charitable organizations are worried about that. Because people no longer have the tax incentive to give. Sometimes that's part of the motivation for giving to charitable organizations is that I get a tax break for that. And this year it's less, it's going to be less of a, of a, of a volatile, viable thing for people who give because it's just, you have to give so much and most people probably aren't. And there's a lot of worry about it. And I've been, we've been talking about it here. And it struck me the other day that maybe, maybe this is one of the best gifts God's ever given the church. Because now, whatever we give has only one motive. We don't have any other motive. We don't have to sit back and say, okay, am I giving so I get a tax break? Or am I giving because I love Jesus? Now, it's all loving Jesus. There ain't going to be any tax break for most of us, right? So we get an opportunity to, to see our hearts. We get an opportunity to look in our hearts and say, yes, you know what? This is, this, is the gen- this is a level of generosity that I believe God has called me to, and I'm happy to give it or not. And there's something about that kind of, of examination of ourselves that I think is healthy. It's good. To be able to step back and say, does, does my generosity represent my love for Jesus? My gratitude for Jesus? And often... It is the contrast between this woman and the disciples. But when the disciples say, what a waste, I think there's something even deeper that that they might even realize. But I think in a certain sense they do. Because Jesus has said to them, "I'm I'm about ready to go to the cross. And Peter says, don't talk like that. And I think there is, a, there is an underlying sense in their response that says the way of the cross is not the way of Jesus. Jesus, that's not how you get things done in this world. You don't get things accomplished in this world through vulnerability. You get things accomplished through might and power. You get things accomplished by knowing the right people and having the right connections. You get things done in this world... By having things, controlling things, not by going to a cross. Not by vulnerability, not by sacrifice, not by surrender. That's not how you get things done. I remember reading a prayer years ago that has just stuck with me. One of the ancient liturgies that says, God, I thank you that the way of the cross is the way of life. And I think the disciples are wrestling with Jesus about this. Jesus, we want you to get to life, but surely there's a better way. Surely there's another way. Because if you go to the cross, that's a waste. I guarantee you, as Friday, as Friday set, the hours on Friday set, the disciples are thinking to themselves, that was a wasted life. We know on this side of it that it wasn't. But the call of Jesus on you and me is to say, do we believe that the way of the cross is the way of life? Not just for Jesus, but for those of us who follow Jesus. Who says to the people around him, if you want to be my disciples, you take up your cross and you follow me. Paul says to the church in Philippi, 
Have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Think the same way. Because this is the mission, this is the purpose of Jesus, to redeem the world. What does it mean for him to be the redeemer, the Messiah, the anointed one? It's about giving up his life. Giving his life away. And something about what this woman does connects with that. The great thing is, eventually the disciples get it. Eventually we find, about two months later, they, they see it. And their whole world is turned upside down, but in this moment they're missing it. I'm intrigued by the fact that Jesus sort of summarizes this story by saying, wherever the gospel is preached, wherever the good news is proclaimed, the story will be told about what this woman has just done. I've been scratching my head about that one all week. Because I don't see that happening. I don't see that being how the gospel is proclaimed and preached, that this woman's story keeps popping up in the middle of it. I, I sort of feel like it's a little bit of maybe hyperbole. And Jesus does like to use hyperbole when he tells stories and talks about things. It, it's sort of like when you say to your friends... This restaurant is the best restaurant I have ever been to in my life. The food there is better than any food I've ever eaten in my life. And they go try it. You say, what did you think? It was okay. It was fine. Really? Or that was the funniest movie I've ever seen. I've never seen anything better. And your friends go see it and they, what would you think? It was funny. Okay. And I think there's a certain sense where we're saying to Jesus, I mean, it was good, but, you know, it wasn't that good. I mean, it was it was beautiful, but it wasn't that impressive. That everywhere the gospel is preached, this is the story that's told. I think what Jesus means is the essence of what this woman has done is the essence of the gospel. That to love Jesus is the essence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. God has said that from the beginning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when you do that, then you love your neighbor as you love yourself. But it's about loving God with all that we are, and that will often mean extravagant love. And that's the call of the gospel. God doesn't call us. Jesus doesn't go to the cross so we can be kind of Christian. He goes to the cross so we can know the fullness of life in him. And to know, to to give our lives in service and love and gratitude. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so often we miss that. I wonder too if we also miss that, that once again, the hero of the story is the person you would least expect. In a room full of men, the hero of the story is a woman. If you read through the Gospels, you will find that a majority of the time, the hero of the story is the most unexpected person in the story. You just think about it. Tax collector, leper, Gentile, 
Samaritan, a Roman soldier, children, women. In a culture that says these people are insignificant, the gospel keeps telling us we have it wrong. They have it wrong. And God keeps using the most unexpected people to to share his word. And I think that's significant for us in two ways. I think for one thing, this story reminds us of what we see glimpses of throughout the Old Testament. We see it more and more in in the Gospels of Jesus and on into the church that women are just as valuable in the kingdom as men are. And women are just as much messengers of the gospel as men are. And in a patriarchal culture in which they were living in first century Palestine, to have story after story where women are the heroes would almost be unheard of. But that's what the gospel does. That's why Paul says, in the kingdom, there is not male and female or slave or free or Gentile or Jew, because we are all one in Christ. And in the kingdom... Women have every bit of value as men do. And the church has not had a good track record about that. And we've been wrong about that. But we need to understand that the people, that God uses all people to to be messengers of the gospel. And none of them are less or more. They are all equal messengers of the gospel. Because when you get to the resurrection story... Who are the people witnessing to everybody else? The first witnesses are women. And you see this over and over and over again. And I think that's significant for women to realize they are not second-class citizens in the kingdom in any way. It's important for men to realize that women are not second-class citizens in the kingdom in any way. We are all one and equal in Christ. But I also think it reminds us that sometimes we have in our minds that there might be people in this world to whom God could never speak to us. There are groups of people, I suspect, maybe because they have theological differences, maybe they have political differences, maybe they are different class than us, one way or the other, whatever the cases are, all those things that divide us from each other, there is something in us that says, I don't see how God could ever speak into my life through them. The problem with that is that God wants to speak into our lives through all kinds of people and circumstances. And I have discovered for myself that the very moment that thought starts creeping into my head, it's in that very moment that that very group of people, someone in that group is the very person that God says, I want you to listen to them. And God is continually bringing unexpected people, unexpected circumstances into our lives to speak his truth. And and if we think that there are some people and some circumstances through which God could not speak to us, then now we have cut ourselves off from the word of God to us. And we don't do that in a vacuum. Because what ends up happening is when we start doing that, we start closing the circle more and more and more until we have a hard time hearing God through anyone. 
What God wants us to do is to be people who are ready and willing to hear him through anyone that he wants to speak to us. It is as counterintuitive in our minds as the cross being the way of life. But it's a part of the kingdom. And that spirit of humble openness is what God is calling all of us to. To see, to hear, to receive, to believe. There's only one cross. There is only one Messiah. There's only one means through which the redemption of the world takes place, and that is Jesus. That there is, there is no other means of, of, of the world being redeemed than Jesus. He is the Redeemer, Jesus, and Jesus alone. And that is the foundation of our faith. Everything rests on that. And if we, if we deny that, we've denied the faith. That is foundational. But as I said a few moments ago, we have to also remember that Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you take up your cross and follow me. You take my mind, make, have your mind be my, like my mind. And that's often the rub for us. I love the fact that Jesus is willing to die for us. We wrestle with being willing to take up our cross and to follow him. But that is the call of the gospel and the call of Jesus. It's what it means to be a disciple. You know, there is a sense in which everybody in the story is... Preparing for the burial of Jesus. Caiaphas and the priests, the woman, disciples, Judas. They're all preparing for the burial of Jesus and they're all doing it in a different way. But the only one about whom Jesus says they get it right is this woman. Because she looks at Jesus with wholehearted love. And she acts out of that love. To sacrifice and to give what is most precious to her. her. You and I are also preparing for the burial of Jesus. As we walk through this season of Lent... We're going to come face to face with the call of the gospel that's going to lead to the cross. And the question for each one of us is, how are we preparing for that day, that moment? In openness, love, or something else? Holy Father, we thank you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that the the way of life is the way of the cross. Open our eyes to see. Open our hearts to love. We thank you.
for Jesus, our Redeemer. Let us embrace him. We ask this through Jesus. Amen.